It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, you. Hello. Nice to see you. To, to see, see you. you. Nice. What do points make? Prizes. I really think we're going to see our listener numbers shoot up amongst Gen Z. Are they the ones after millennials with all these hip references that we're making? I know. I slightly think we should edit this bit out, don't you think? It's like no. re- sort of, you know, kind of references to sort of 1980s sort of, uh, you know, diddly-doos. Now, the the seasons are turning, aren't they? Yes, I've been sorting through my cardigans this morning. I do enjoy autumn. I think it's my favourite season. What, more than summer? Yeah, I think autumn's the greatest season. You still get some sunny days, but there's just that lovely chill in the air, the leaves turning gold, you get to wear knitwear. You are, you, you, know, the, you know, Barbara Follett famously in the 1990s was sort of, would identify whether the, the kind of clothes sort of um, sort of style that was appropriate for Labour politicians. You'd been folleted. There was this phrase. Is that right? Yeah. Did you not know about this? And no. and and it was before she became a Labour MP. And and Robin Cook was an autumn, um, famously. I think he thought it was a load of old bollocks. But anyway. <laughs> uh, um, and you are, you are definitely in autumn, aren't you? Oh, I think so. Browns, greens, yeah, knitwear, patches on the elbows. This is this is all very on brand for me. So, so in the context of the autumn, um, yes, I, I've actually been. Uh, so, I sort of made a big life decision, which is, you know, I live fifteen minutes from the like Highgate Ponds, and you know, I sort of made a decision that I'm going to. You know, I'm determined to sort of keep doing open air swimming. And so I've been swimming in the rain this week. Wow. How was that? Great. A little chilly. What's the water temperature? It, it, it was sort of, it was, it got as high as 18 or 19, but it, it, it's, it was 17, but probably plunging a bit. But are you but, going to invest in a wetsuit? Well, I am, I know, I, I, I'm sort of thinking about that, but I'm wondering whether I think I'm going to have to, but, um, because there's this thing, isn't there? Once the temperature goes below a certain temperature, you can't, you shouldn't swim for more than one minute per centigrade, if you see what I mean. Lovely, lovely to hear the word centigrade. Is it Celsius? Yes. Well, what, what, who says? Well, Mr. Celsius, who invented it, why would you want to deny him his honour? But what about centigrade? Well, isn't that just something pilots say or people who don't want to give, you know, who, who want to erase mr celsius from history hang on a minute hang on a minute just before you sort of get on your high horse here i mean are you saying that when they announce on the weather in the weather forecast it's 18 it's gonna be 18 degrees they're saying 18 degrees celsius always yeah not centigrade nobody said centigrade for about 25 years i think you're just making this up i'm not making it up that's real that is genuinely a revelation Oh, uh, Joel has, while we've been talking, Joel has sent a message. Yeah. 
Uh, and he says, to eliminate confusion between the unit of temperature and the unit of angular measurement, the ninth meeting of the General Conference on Weights and Measures uh, at the Comité International de Poids et Mesures, CIPM, formally adopted Celsius in 1948. <laughs> Okay, well, so, well, it seems to me, it seems, okay, can I just, okay, can I just say smart ass? That seems to me to make you out of date because that's not, it's 1948. I think centigrade's the modern equivalent. Do you think so, do you? I'm amazed. Do you genuinely say Celsius? Yes. Yeah. I would never say it's 17 degrees Celsius. I just thought you were being quaint, you know, all your little quaint expressions that you have. I thought it was just another one of those. I've sort of, I've obviously plunged into a strange space-time continuum. Uh, the BBC, by the way, switched uh, from centigrade to Celsius. Uh, now, that was a bit more recently. When? That was 1985. Okay, well, exactly. Well, the thing was that I was probably paying a lot of so, attention. So just, the 30, just the 35 years ago. I was probably paying a lot of attention before 1985. <laughs> I'm going to have this debate with my family. That's most extraordinary. I mean, that's genuinely, I, I think that is a revelation. You sound like Austin Powers, like you've been frozen in time and you've just, we've just thawed you out. Well, uh, I mean, maybe you have. I mean, I just, I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of slightly gobsmacked, actually. <laughs> I just don't think I would ever use the word Celsius. <laughs> right. Shall we talk about what we're going to talk about? Yes. Yes. Well, it's a quite a special episode this week. Uh, this week we're talking to one of the world's most renowned and I would say most popularising philosophers, Michael Sandel, about his new book, uh, The Tyranny of Merit. And basically this sort of takes on, I suppose, something that is almost uh, a kind of commonplace in our political culture across left and right, the idea of meritocracy. Uh, and he's basically criticising that and saying that the idea we are a meritocracy or even that we should be a meritocracy leads to harsh judgments about success and failure and partly explains the rise of the populist right uh, in our country. And he's quite critical of the centre-left politicians like Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Tony Blair for having sort of embraced this meritocracy uh, idea. Uh, he he emphasises uh how far countries like the UK and US are from true equality of opportunity. And he argues for something different, which is what he calls a politics of the common good. And he basically says we'd be much better off with a politics of the common good, which doesn't put this idea of meritocracy at the centre. Yes, he's in favour of opportunity uh, and expanding opportunity, but he thinks it's very inadequate as a political vision. It's a really fascinating conversation. He is a, a kind of brilliant guy, both in terms of his level of thinking, but also his ability to to, to talk about it in a in a kind of illuminating and engaging way. So it's a it's a conversation which I think our listeners will really enjoy. So what's your reason to be cheerful? Cobra Kai. I'm sorry. Sarah and I have become obsessed with this TV show. What I don't think is it's necessarily you know part of the golden age of television. But it's one of these where every episode ends, and uh, you know the little timer starts counting down, and we say, "Should we just should we just watch one more?" So, do you remember the Karate Kid? Yes. So I, I was never a big fan of those Karate Kid films. Me neither. What this? Well, me. So, so I'm surprised that I like this show. Yeah. What it is is the two main characters from Karate Kid, the bad guy, and then the hero played by Ralph Macchio. As they are today, these two middle-aged men. Wow. So Karate Kid was made, what, in the 1980s or something? Yeah, I think it was like 1984, 1985, wow. something like that. Oh, oh. And, the, the, you know, the bad guy in it was a real sort of stereotypical, one-dimensional 80s villain. And in this, they've given you his backstory and turned him into a bit of an anti-hero who sees a kid being bullied and then decides to teach him karate. Meanwhile, Ralph Macchio's character, who was the big hero in the original film or films, uh, is a somewhat cheesy car salesman. He's got his own car dealership who uses karate and commercials to advertise his business. And it's really addictive. It's sort of throwaway nonsense, but it's really addictive. And it's it's properly funny in places. And it's called what, Cobra Kai? 
Cobra Kai, which is the name of the the dojo that this guy sets up. Is that one word or two? Two words. Cobra as in a snake. Yeah. And we went out for our um, wedding anniversary the other night and almost all of the conversation we had was about whether people we know would be best taught karate using the Cobra Kai method or the Mr. Miyagi method. And what did you conclude about me? Mr. Miyagi. I don't think you do well with tough love. What's Mr. Miyagi? You know, very zen-like, uh, very calm. It's, I think, carrot rather than stick. Interesting. Wow. So yeah. do, you, do you think I'd like the programme? Do you think we'd like the programme? I mean, it, fe- it, it feels like watching a pastiche of an 80s thing without it ever sort of descending mm. into parody. Um, it's, it, yeah, what I'm not saying, oh, is this is the next Sopranos or it's the next right. Breaking Bad, but it's, it's really... And which addictive. is it on? Which thing is it on? Netflix. Okay. Netflix. I mean, we're sort of on yeah. series five of Parks and Recreation and we, I'm conscious we've only got two to go. So, I mean, we've literally, it's our most remarkable thing. We've just gone through each episode. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, uh, it's just, I just love Parks and Recreation. Shall I tell you my reason to be cheerful? I mean, it's, it's, it's rather less, um, high level than yours. It's about China's net zero pledge sending ripples around the world. Um, mm. uh, <laughs> And look, it's, it, it, this is, in all seriousness, something really important and actually pretty positive did happen this week in relation to climate change. Um, Boris Johnson went to the UN and sort of wanged on without saying anything, as far as I can tell. But uh, Xi- Hang on, Boris Johnson wanged on without saying anything. Exactly. But Xi Jinping has pledged that China will achieve carbon neutrality, so net zero carbon emissions by 2060, or before 2060, I beg your pardon, and I've checked with sort of people I know, including people who used to be in the uh, US administration uh, under Obama, and they think this is a big deal. Um, uh, I mean, basically, the, the, the view is that it could reduce the eventual extent of global warming by 0.2 to 0.3 degrees centigrade, um, <laughs> uh, uh, or Celsius, if you're old fashioned like you. Um, and, uh, or probably 0.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, uh, but it's, it's, you know, is 2060 early enough? Probably not. Does China tend to under promise and over deliver? Yes, it does. Um, you know, it's not, it's not perfect, but it's a big move. It's a big and positive move. It's ahead of COP26 in Glasgow. Uh, next year if joe biden wins uh, along with us eu leadership it could really start to kind of unlock a kind of a, a kind of more positive direction on climate change reasons to be cheerful with ed miliband and jeff lloyd i'm delighted to say that we are now joined from brookline massachusetts by michael sandell a renowned global political philosopher uh, his books include Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets, and uh, his latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, The Tyranny of Merit. Merit. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Ed. Great to be with you. Just because we're a sort of friendly show, let's, before we get right into your book, tell us about lockdown. You're, 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 you're teaching uh, at Harvard as normal, or um, how's it been for you? All of the teaching this term, Ed, is being done remotely. And so I'm at home and meeting with my class. We've adapted the classes to the online setting, which has taken some doing, but but that's what we're doing. So I'm basically uh, working from home and teaching from home. Let's talk about your really interesting book, The Tyranny of Merit. Just to sort of lay it out at the beginning meritocracy is almost in our political debate something that most people seem to believe in give us your core case against meritocracy what why is it a tyranny of meritocracy the case against it ed begins i think with the deep polarization the rancor and the anger that afflicts politics in democracies around the world together with the fact that for the past few decades, the divide between winners and losers has been deepening, poisoning our politics and driving us apart. And I think that one of the reasons for this 
goes beyond the deepening inequalities of income and wealth, which are by now familiar and much discussed, to the changing attitudes toward success and failure that have come with it. Somehow those who've landed on top have come to believe that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and that by implication, those who struggle must deserve their fate as well. This is what I call the meritocratic hubris of elites that set in, and it leads them to look down on a great many working people, those without university degrees. And this looking down, I think, has contributed to the anger and resentment that has fueled the populist backlash against elites. And you, interestingly, in your book, say that you've noticed, you talk about what trends have you noticed among your students, and you say the one trend you've noticed perhaps more than any other is this sense that they've got into Harvard and, you know, they deserve to be there because it's through their own merit that they're there, not because of any privileged advantage they might have had. I have noticed this, and I don't blame the students for it, Ed, because the experience they've been through getting here has, in recent years, become so... It's become a, a, an anxiety-strewn gauntlet of meritocratic competition, beginning in their teenage years, sometimes before under the heavy hand of helicopter parents very often, inculcating a striving for success as if everything in their future depended on their getting into a place like this. So by the time they arrive, they almost have to believe, how could they believe otherwise, that their, their achievement is thanks to their own striving, their own strenuous effort, and therefore their own doing. And and before we sort of get on to the the sort of some of what you would do about this, it is interesting to note, isn't it, that the the the, the term meritocracy was first coined by Michael Young in I think the late nineteen fifties. The rise of the right. meritocracy was his book, and it was definitely not a good thing in his formulation. He was conjuring a society for twenty thirty that would be very much a bad thing. So talk to us a little bit about that, because you're in that lineage very much. But but then why, and you've already by implication talked about this, why has it become the rhetoric of the age? It's true, Ed, just as you say, the, the term meritocracy was coined by Michael Young, the, the sociologist in the late 1950s, affiliated with the Labour Party. And he saw meritocracy as a dystopia. Of course, he welcomed the breaking down of class privilege, the aristocratic legacy of post-war Britain, but he glimpsed the dark side of the meritocracy that was displacing it, and he, the dark side, he argued, was that the winners would believe that they had done it on their own, that they had earned it that those who fell behind would believe that they had had a chance in a meritocratic society and fallen short, so they would be demoralized. And he was onto something important, even prescient. It's true, since he coined the term, a great many politicians of the center-right and of the center-left embraced his term, meritocracy, not as a dystopia, but as an ideal. But what Michael Young glimpsed has come to pass. He predicted that in the year 2034, there would be a populist uprising against the meritocratic elite. Uh, he was right, except that that backlash came about 18 years ahead of schedule. And why has it happened, Michael? Why has this idea, which was initially, you know, a dystopia, become so prevalent and so almost accepted as a good thing? Because it has two very attractive, even inspiring ideals embedded in it. 
One is a certain idea of freedom, of human agency, that each of us is responsible for his or her fate. That if the if chances are equal, and we still, of course, struggle to make chances equal, they aren't, but insofar as they are, people can believe that their success is earned. And there is a powerful notion of human agency in that, that it's up to us, that we are masters of our fate. That's terribly appealing, moving, inspiring. And it's connected to another attractive ideal, which is, if we succeed, we get what we deserve. The idea that by the exercise of our freedom, we arrive at a place where merit is rewarded in, in proportion to, to our achievements. So I think any critique of meritocracy has to begin by acknowledging its powerful appeal. Now, it's really important to sort of say to listeners um, that this book, both throughout it, I would say, points to how far from a meritocracy we are, right. as well as critiquing the idea. And I think it's kind of important to spend a little bit of time on the interaction between these two sort of ideas. I mean, you you cite these extraordinary figures at the Ivy League colleges and other prestigious universities there are more students from the wealthiest one percent of families in the united states than from the entire bottom half of the country so you are i mean it's important to say to our listeners you are very much taking aim at the idea that we are in a meritocracy but right the, but the, but i think you're saying something really profoundly important which is that even though we're not in one and even though politicians don't necessarily claim we're in one the 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 the, the propagation of the idea is 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 making the people who are not necessarily college educated or university educated feel that somehow they are being branded a failure is that is that that's 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 where you're coming from isn't it yes and it's i'm glad that you distinguish these two aspects of the argument there uh, one set of objections to meritocracy is just as you say that we fall short of the meritocratic principles we profess. And that's certainly true, and that's been widely observed. Few would quarrel with that idea. But in the book, I do make a further, stronger, perhaps more controversial claim that even if we could achieve a perfect meritocracy, even if chances were somehow made truly equal, even then we would have to contend with the dark side of meritocracy because those who would succeed under such a system could be all the more confident that their success was their own doing, a measure of their merit. And in a perfect meritocracy, those who fell short would believe my chances were equal, and I fell short. It must be my fault. So that demoralizing aspect would, if anything, be accentuated if we really did live in a true meritocracy where chances are equal. But the meritocratic hubris would still be a problem. It would still be a problem because the conviction that our, that our success is our due leads us to forget the luck and good fortune that helps us on our way. It leads us to forget our indebtedness for our success. Even where we start out with a level playing field, our indebtedness to community, to country, our, our indebtedness to the fact that we live at a time and in a society that happens to prize the the talents we have to offer. None of that's our own doing, even if chances were somehow truly equal. And so even a perfect meritocracy would still promote, be an engine for the meritocratic hubris that polarizes our societies today, drives us apart, and ultimately, and this is my main concern, 
ultimately undermines the possibility of a politics of the common good. And, and I think what's very significant about your book is that although you are a person very much of the centre-left, you take aim a lot in the book at centre-left governments, Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama too, because you're not just saying, as Michael Young was saying, if we ever got to a perfect meritocracy, um, it wouldn't be good, it would be bad. You're saying even distant as we are from very distant as we are from a meritocracy the rhetoric of rising as you call it is having corrosive effects talk to us a little bit about that yes the the rhetoric of rising is how i describe these by now very familiar phrases political slogans almost that are so familiar we consider them uncontroversial and we hear them from center-left and center-right politicians. The idea that if you, uh, if you work hard, everybody should be able to rise as far as their effort and talents will take them. We hear this from politicians in the U.S., in the U.K., center-left, center-right. Barack Obama had a version of it that he was fond of. You can make it if you try. He said that over a hundred times in speeches of various kinds. And it's a rhetoric that's meant to be inspiring to encourage individual upward mobility. The problem is it's taken to be the primary answer, at least by center-left politicians and parties. It's been offered as the primary response to the deepening inequality brought about by globalization in recent decades. And so it has distracted or deflected these parties from contending with that inequality itself, inequalities of income and wealth and power, and focused instead on individual mobility through higher education as the answer. But that's not a plausible answer, first of all, because most people don't get a four-year university degree. In Britain, in the U.S., in most European countries, around two-thirds of adults don't have a four-year university degree. So constructing an economy that makes a university degree and the upward mobility it makes possible a condition for dignified work and a decent life, that's a mistake. And it's a, it's a damaging mistake because the parties that have made that offer, the rhetoric of rising, have missed the insult implicit in it. And the implicit insult to working people, to people who don't have a university degree, is if you didn't go to college or university. And if you're struggling in the new economy, your failure is your fault. And we, we see hints of this disparagement. Well, perhaps one of the most memorable phrases expressing this disparagement and the meritocratic hubris of elites was that famous line of Hillary Clinton during the 2016 campaign, when she said half of Trump's supporters are a basket of deplorables. This, this played in precisely to the sense among many people without a university degree that elites look down on them, disparage them, don't value them. But it's revealing, it's revealing of the shift that's taken place. The center-left parties have become parties, by 2016, had become the parties, uh, parties more congenial to the outlook and concerns of the technocratic and professional elites than to the concerns and ways of thinking of the working people who provided uh, their traditional constituencies. I think this happened to the Democrat, Democrats in the United States, from the 90s forward, to the Labour Party in Britain, but you'll tell me if I'm wrong about that, Ed, and to the social democratic parties of Europe. It used to be 
that less those without a college education voted for these parties, and those with university degrees voted for center-right parties. That was the traditional pattern. And that has been reversed, and then we saw it explode with Brexit, the Brexit vote in Britain and the Trump election in the United States. And I do want to come on to the sort of what a different politics looks like, but just before we do, I mean, isn't there also something very significant that you're saying, which is lots of people have talked about this as a sort of policy problem, i.e., you know, what do you do about, you know, the, the how do you help people who don't go to university, all of that stuff. But you're not just talking about it as a sort of policy problem. You're talking about it as a, um, a sort of emotional problem of the centre-left. That, that, and I think it's quite significant what you say about Trump in the book, which is Trump did not engage in the rhetoric of rising. He wasn't right. saying to people, you know, he could, you could have imagined him saying to people, listen, if I'm the president, you know, there'll be lots more successful business people like me. You'll be able to get ahead, etc. But that wasn't really his message. He was much more, I'm sharing your loss and your pain. Yes, it, it is interesting. Trump rarely, during the campaign, as far as I was able to find, never used the rhetoric of rising, this idea that everyone should be able to rise as far um, as his dreams, his dreams and effort and talents uh, will take them. He didn't use that language. His argument was different. He tapped into the grievances and resentments very effectively and convincingly. And he said he would make people winners by making America great again and standing up for America first. Insofar as his politics of grievance had an aspirational quality, it was that. It was that the nation, America, would be great, would be a winner again. It was not a message about individual upward mobility through getting a university degree. It wasn't that at all. And I think his resonance in 2016 suggests that the rhetoric of rising had lost its capacity to inspire, partly because it didn't fit the facts on the ground. Social mobility has been stalled in the U.S. and also in the U.K. But more than that, I think the ideal had run its course and had lost its capacity to inspire. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Let, let's move to talking about solutions. And I just want to ask you a framing question on solutions. Your first book, which I read when I was at university, was a uh, uh, it's fair to say, I think, a critique of John Rawls's theory of justice called Liberalism and the Limits of Justice. And this book, too, is is kind of consistent and consonant with that because you talk about your, the subtitle is What Became of the Common Good. Talk right. to us about this idea of the common good because I think it's quite an important sort of framing 
fr- frame for the for the for the discussion we're going to have? We've fallen into the idea. We've fallen into an impoverished understanding of the common good. Essentially, as GDP or consumer welfare, as the economists would call it, the shallow understanding of the common good that is implicit in much of our politics sees the common good simply as summing up our individual preferences and trying to satisfy them. I say this is an impoverished conception of the common good because it misses an older tradition that sees the common good as an activity among equal citizens who reason together, argue together about common purposes and ends, and who may not come to a firm and final agreement on the nature of a good society, but who learn something along the way, who learn the habit of listening, who learn to care for people from all walks of life, who learn how to deliberate about competing conceptions of uh, justice and the good society. And on solutions, can, can we move on to what you call equality of condition? Uh, I wondered if you could tell us what that is, what it looks like, and why it's preferable to equality of opportunity. We often assume that there are only two alternatives with regard to equality. Either equality of opportunity, which is roughly speaking the conception we've been discussing here, the meritocratic idea of trying to level the playing field so that everyone starts the race at the same starting point. That's, roughly speaking, the idea of equality of opportunity. And then the faster runners will win, the slower runners will fall back, but the principle of equality of opportunity will have been met. Now, those who resist any criticism of equality of opportunity say... Well, does that mean you want to insist on an equality of result, an equality of outcome where everyone must have the same income and wealth and how oppressive that would be? And for that matter, how unfair to the, to the winners of the race? By equality of condition, I mean a third conception of, of equality. It's more than just putting all the runners at the same starting point. It does not mean a leveling equality where one tries to equalize everybody's income and wealth. It refers instead to a broad democratic condition in which all citizens share a common life and an equal standing with one another, at least to the extent that everyone, whatever his or her walk of life or career or form of work, can everyone can hold their heads up high, look their fellow citizens in the eye, reason and argue in the public arena about what should be done, that's equality of condition. It also means a broad diffusion of learning so that civic education, reflection on the best that the culture has to offer, is not only available to those who manage to attend universities, but is spread throughout the society that's the idea of, of, roughly speaking, of a broad democratic equality of condition. So, so do, to some extent, do we remove the judgments of success and failure in, in the equality of condition? They loom much less large. Of course, there will be some who make a lot of money and others who make much less. But provided the public life is arranged 
so that everyone can live a decent life and a dignified life, one that provides not only the material basis for a decent life, but also opportunities to win social recognition and esteem, honor and respect from the society as a whole, to be seen to make valuable contributions and to be appreciated for that. That's what would be required. And that's as different from the obsession with success and professional rank that is so widespread today, Jeff. And, and can you talk to us a bit more about what you touched on there with education, how the, the vision of it wouldn't just be something to further your career and economic value? What, what would it look right. like? And, and who would it be open to? Uh, looking back, one of the earliest successful, influential trade unions in American history was called the Knights of Labor, who were they were the largest, uh, most influential part of the labor movement in the late 19th century. Now, part of their demands involved the familiar demands about wages and hours and workplace conditions. But one of their demands that always struck me and moved me was a demand for reading rooms in factories, stocked with newspapers and journals, so that in their free time, workers could inform themselves about public affairs and equip themselves to be citizens, to exercise their voice. What we do with higher learning, well, here... Here, Jeff referred to the fact that so often today uh, university education is conceived in instrumental terms as a way of earning a credential or a skill uh, or a set of connections, networking even, that will uh, further one's career in a meritocratic society. I think this instrumentalizing of higher education has converted universities into sorting machines for a meritocratic society. It's cast them as arbiters of opportunity. And while this has enlarged the cultural prominence and power and prestige of universities, I'm not sure it's good even for those universities and the students who attend them, never mind for those who are excluded. And the reason is, that my impression is that the credentializing, sorting function of the university is crowding out our educational mission. What we've done, sometimes argued that, yes, but higher education is higher, not only in a sorting sense, but also because students learn the, the liberal arts, they're exposed to humane learnings, to the classics, to philosophy, to history, to the liberal arts, to moral philosophy, to which I say there's no reason in principle why those subjects and forms of learning should be sequestered in the citadel of higher education uh, and then uh, rather than spread throughout other forms of, of civil society and made more broadly accessible. So that, that's what I have in mind. Talk to me a little bit about the, the idea of the dignity of work um, and what, what, what your view on the sort of existence of that is. And, and if you sort of do believe in it as a concept, then how, how do we restore it and, uh, give value to not just the roles very highly valued in the um, global economy? Jeff, I think the dignity of work depends, uh, in the first instance, on recognizing that work is not only a way of making a living. It's also a way of contributing to the to the economy, to the common good, 
and winning recognition for doing so. This element of recognition or respect or esteem is a crucial part of the dignity of work, and it's what's been missing in our public life as prestige and esteem have uh, have flowed disproportionately to the professional classes, to those with university diplomas, and those who do other kinds of work have a growing sense that the work they do isn't recognized or appreciated the way it once was. And I don't think they're wrong about that. And, as, and we've seen the financialization of our economies in recent decades and enormous uh, rewards, but also social standing and prestige has attached to those who make lots of money on Wall Street or in the city, in hedge funds, in speculative finance. And yet it's not so evident, I would say it's far from evident, that the contributions they make to the economy are anywhere in line with the rewards and the social esteem that they enjoy. I think this this lack of alignment between contribution and recognition is part of what is demoralizing for a great many working people. And what I've noticed during the pandemic is that we are finally beginning to appreciate our dependence on workers we often overlook. We recognize our dependence on, I don't just mean the hospital workers, but delivery workers, grocery store clerks, warehouse workers, lorry drivers, home health care providers, child care providers. And this could be a moment to to, um, begin a new debate about how to renew the dignity of work. Michael, why do you think the right has been more successful than the left at sort of recognizing this, this, what you're talking about and this, the pain and loss people are feeling? I would say a certain segment of the right has been more effective. Not so much the mainstream establishment center right parties and politicians. I think they they have been rejected uh, as tone deaf in much the way that center-left parties have been rejected for being tone deaf. But the, the strand of right-wing politics that has spoken effectively to these resentments and these grievances, I think is a, they, they tend to be parties and politicians who have seized on the status the reduced status of the nation and of national identity during this same period of market-driven globalization. We see this in Trump. We see this in the Brexit vote. We see this in Marine Le Pen in France. We see this in still small but growing alternative for Deutschland in Germany. So connected with the rejection and ang- rejection of and anger against governing elites, meritocratic elites, experts, connect closely connected to that is the sense that these elites who brought us the project of market-driven globalization cared little for the nation. I think that part of what we've learned from this, from the the authoritarian populist backlash for all its ugliness, its racism and misogyny and xenophobia. Embedded in it is a lesson that I think center-left and, for that matter, responsible center-right parties need to learn, which is people care about identities closer to home than a purely abstract cosmopolitan identity, the one that was implicit in the market-driven globalization project. 
and that at the same time was invoked to ship their jobs overseas. People want some want parties and want leaders who will be patriotic, who will care about their fate, who will take pride in their national traditions, their national community. And I think center-left and center-right parties make a great mistake to cede this entire terrain to the uh, to the authoritarian populist uh, politicians. Now, Michael, this podcast is called Reasons to be Cheerful. Um, yes. You've written a, a, an excellent book, but I don't, I'm not sure we'd describe it as cheerful. There's che- definitely cheerful elements to it. Give us, give us some reasons to be cheerful or a reason to be cheerful at the end. If you'll allow me, Ed, I would distinguish between reasons to be cheerful and reasons to have hope. And the the book, uh, (laughs) my book, The Tyranny of Merit, is really, in the end, a hopeful book in that it tries to set out a way of uh, shifting our attitudes, rethinking our attitudes toward winning and losing, toward success and failure, in a way that challenges the meritocratic hubris of elites that reminds the successful of the role of luck in our lives, of good fortune, of our dependence on community and country for the conditions that enable at least some some to flourish. And the hope that this opens, this is really a kind of, a kind of turning If I believe my success is my due, it's very hard to see myself in other people's shoes. But an appreciation of luck in life can prompt a certain humility. The idea that there, but for the accident of fate or the luck of the draw or the grace of God, there go I, that can open us to a politics of the common good, to a concern for our fellow citizens, some of whom may struggle. That's very hard to summon if we assume that we have what we deserve and they have what they deserve. And so what I'm hopeful for is that after this populist backlash has caught the attention and been properly uh, interpreted by people who worry about the fate of democracy, we can find our way to, well, to embrace a civic virtue of humility, or at least greater humility, which can point us beyond the tyranny of merit toward a less rancorous, more generous public life. That's my hope, Ed. That is definitely a hopeful note to end on. We should rechristen the podcast Reasons to be Hopeful. Um, (laughs) Michael Sandell, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always, to, to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. I've really enjoyed this. So what did you think of that conversation? I can't stop thinking about it. I think it is such an interesting idea because it seems like such a positive thing on the face of it you think you know e- equality of opportunity is is this great thing and and i've been thinking a lot about really in in context of people i grew up with and my family and and what they wanted out of life and it it wasn't necessarily to to climb that ladder and get into those professional jobs or those jobs which require degrees that are so prioritized in a meritocracy it speaks to that idea of making you know life go and it touches on the foundational economics of last week thinking about what life is like for most people and how you can facilitate that being a good life rather than thinking these people need rescuing from this life i mean we when i when you said earlier um You've been thinking about it a lot. We should say to our listeners that we recorded this conversation what ten days, two weeks ago. So, so, uh, yeah. and I, it's the same thing really for me. 
I, it's really, you know, it's one of those conversations which has really stuck in my mind and it's sort of, you know, it's come out in conversation with people and it's almost unexpectedly. And I guess, I mean, there's three things that I sort of think about it. One, I think it speaks not just to the sort of direct issue of meritocracy, but the sort of hyper-competitive society, you know, sort of fear of, you know, middle-class fear of falling, uh, you know, fear of not getting on. It's like, you know, it's sort of sink or swim, you know. And I think, I think secondly, it sort of leaves that, it, 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 and relatedly, it tends to, a, I think he says this in his book, it's like credentialism is the last acceptable snobbery. You know, you went to university, you didn't go to university. It's somehow a sort of a marker of whether you're a success or not. And maybe that's, and that's kind of what you're speaking to. And and I don't think also, and I think also where he's onto something is this thing about Trump and the populist right. They don't really talk this language. They talk about people's sense of loss, and, he, and it's easy for people to be snobbish about the sense of loss. And and you know the Hillary Clinton basket of deplorables. I don't think I just I don't think the sense of loss is just about that. I just don't think it's about just like. Uh, well, people are racist. It's just I think that is really far, far, far too crude about what mm-hmm. what it is that people have lost from a society with more sort of collective solidarity and on all of the things. And I'm not just saying the past was better, because I'm obviously not saying that. But but I think so. I think there's really many levels at which it's interesting, and it's so interesting that that's the turn that the centre left politicians took. Yeah, but you can you can understand it as well because it seems like a noble aim well it's also better than you only get to go to university or whatever if you've been kind of born into the aristocracy or born into the top echelons yeah it's not that it's unimportant it's that it's been over prioritized it's become the badge of success and and it's this context of a hyper competitive society i think that that if you don't get to a university or don't get to it for some people's eyes a top university life's going to be really much harder for you which yeah. might be true, but that's not a prop. That's that doesn't say you know, that that tells you something about the problem of our society. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Right. Well, I'm off to sort of see what centigrade is going to be over the weekend. <laughs> How how far do you swim when you swim? Actually, to be to be give myself credit, quite far. I mean, in in cubits though. I don't know about in cubits. I mean, five laps between three and five laps, which is which can be as much as sort of forty five minutes. How many horses' hands is that though? Oh, <laughs> I'm just an object of derision here. <laughs> so is that is that what you're uh, is that what you're doing? You go you're, you're off swimming. I've got Annabelle coming around at the weekend, and I'm going to make uh, going to make a bunch of stuff off that website I was telling you about Sanjana feasts. I'm going to make tandoori hasselback potatoes and a tofu doppiazza. I mean that sounds really nice, and I'm as you know on the lookout for good vegetarian dishes. So will you tune me in? I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Should we thank uh, our guest? Yeah, what uh, what a fascinating conversation. Fascinating conversation. And, and I think we should say to listeners, you know, it is quite a stimulating and thought-provoking conversation, so please do email in. You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com and that'll tell you how to email us. And we'd be really interested to know what people thought of that conversation. I think Jeff and I both, as we said in the in our, what we call the upsum, um, really were quite... Sort of stimulated and, and, and found it really thought provoking. So we'd love to hear what you thought of it. So so thank you very very much. Uh, we really appreciated him joining us uh, to Michael Sandel. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. All the research is done by Joel Pierce with backup from Zoe Gelber and Fanula DC and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed composed the music and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Mr. Celsius. He's been Mr. Centigrade. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse. 
Group Sync. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.